Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You'll also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently recorded a new bonus episode on Christopher Nolan's cinematic experiments in general and Tenet in particular, and we're gearing up to record our thoughts on Disney Plus's first Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show, WandaVision. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. American movie theaters are in a state of flux right now, with some reopening and some remaining closed. For safety and sanity's sake, we're still sticking to quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, I'm here with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. And Scott Tobias. And this week, we're going to... Uh, <laughs> okay, Keith, is, is something wrong? You're... You're staring at my Zoom image really intensely. Is that a new mic? Yeah. Yeah, I got a new rig for the podcast. Genevieve you said my audio is getting a little tinny. Why? It's nice, that's all. Yeah, it's a quadcast SureCorder 2000. It's it's pretty efficient. Clean lines, selectable polar patterns, built-in adjustable pot screen. Nice, but you should see mine. I got the Streamnamic Polarize. See the titanium non-reflective casing, the LED indicator for the volume. It's also aerodynamic the quadcast was just featured in wired wasn't it on the short list of the most price efficient podcast mics i can't believe scott prefers tasha's mic to mine uh keith did you just say that out loud oh did my stream namic polarize pick that up i'm not surprised it's got the widest dynamic range of anything on the market guaranteed hiss reducer built right into it too not bad but as the producer of this podcast i made sure i had the best mic it's an audi 12000 that Sounds more like a car name than a mic name. I actually meant it to be more of a threat, as in, if you don't stop obsessing over who's got the best and most enviable mic rig here, I'm Audi 12000. Eh, it fits <laughs> with this week's theme, though. Scott, you want to tell them why? Sure, as long as no one's aggressively eyeballing my mic while I read this copy. Writer-director Emerald Fennell recently released her debut feature film, Promising Young Woman, about a med school dropout played by Carrie Mulligan stalking the streets at night pretending she's drunk in order to lure in men who see her as an easy sexual conquest. Her one-woman vendetta is a tribute to her best friend, who was raped in med school, leading both of them to drop out. The film goes in some dark, controversial directions, operating from the framework of a rape-revenge story, but subverting it both in where the story starts and where it goes. It also operates from a surprisingly vivid, bright aesthetic that's intended as a tonal contrast. That's part of what made us think of Mary Heron's 2000 movie American Psycho, a movie about a very different kind of predator, a businessman slowly losing his mind as he preys on women and executes his co-workers. These films come at the idea of trauma, mental disintegration, and sexual assault from virtually opposite angles, but in their grim humor, extremely dark moments, and specific animation of the relationship between men and women, we found that they had a lot in common. So in this pairing, we're looking at two female directors showcasing people who channel their anger at the status quo into attacking the people around them, with very different inspirations and very different goals, but with a similar sense of almost tongue-in-cheek bleak despair. We'll discuss American Psycho this week and bring Promising Young Woman into the mix next week. 
We'll be right back after this. So, what do you do? I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions mostly. I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh... <laughs> I just had <laughs> to kill a lot of people! There are going to be a lot of questions about why we specifically chose a satirically ironic movie about a man viciously murdering women as a pairing for a movie about a woman fighting back against rape culture and the idea of men feeling entitled to women's bodies. Here's one good reason. They were both made with similar intentions, and they both drew similar responses. Writer Mary Heron, working with partner Guinevere Turner and adapting a 1991 novel by Brett Easton Ellis, saw American Psycho as a satire of 1980s excess and a conversation starter, a provocation expressly from a woman's point of view. Reading her interviews about the film, she emphasizes over and over that she saw a humorous side of the book that other people brought into work on the movie seemed to entirely miss, but she always felt it was necessary to present the story from a specific point of view. The film centers on Patrick Bateman, a narcissistic finance sector guy obsessed with appearances, brand names, and status. He has no values and no ethos. He isn't very charismatic or very good at lying. He also murders people for fun. But Heron does something odd with those murders. She doesn't want them to come from a predator's point of view. As Heron told Katie Reif at the AV Club in 2020 for the film's 20th anniversary, quote, it was very important to look at it from the victim's point of view, because I didn't want the murders to be exciting or thrilling in a traditional kind of way, which is very easy to do. Because if the camera is from the murderer's point of view, then in a way you want them to be killed. You can't help it. You're taking on the mindset of the pursuer. And I wanted to take on the mindset of the hunted, the victim. We're trying to get away from him. That was very important, unquote. American Psycho is one of those films that went through a lengthy development process that could have, at any point, produced a film that looks nothing like the one Heron wound up directing. The movie moved from unproducible status to a going concern when Johnny Depp expressed an interest in playing the lead, and David Cronenberg was brought on to direct. When they exited the project, Heron was brought in on the strength of her 1996 film I Shot Andy Warhol, and she brought in a British actor who was comparatively little known at the time, Christian Bale. But when Lionsgate picked up the distribution rights after the film's first year in pre-production, the studio decided it wanted a bigger star, specifically Leonardo DiCaprio. And when Heron refused to compromise, saying DiCaprio was too boyish for the role and too popular with 13-year-old girls in a way that would make the movie toxic, she was forced off the film as well and temporarily replaced with Oliver Stone. There's a period, Heron said, where their version of the film featured no violence at all and ended with a musical number. But Stone and DiCaprio couldn't agree on a direction for the film. And when they both left the project, Heron was brought back in and allowed to keep her first choice star as long as she kept the budget under $10 million. That's fortunate for all of us. It's impossible to imagine American Psycho being nearly as idiosyncratic or as weird, wild, and wonderful as it is without the two of them. As co-screenwriter, Heron was still involved with the project even when she wasn't attached as a director, and her takes on what other directors had in mind made it clear that they saw it either as a conventional thriller or a big, ridiculous gag. But she and Turner always had their very specific look at this book, as an outsider's horrified view of alpha male rituals and obsessions, coming from a novel by a gay man and scripted and directed by women. She wanted that victim's point of view, the view of someone who would look at Patrick Bateman and see nothing of value, just an empty, pretty face and no soul behind it. 
That's something she shares with Emerald Fennell, who made Promising Young Woman out of sympathy with rape survivors struggling for justice and recognition, and for everyone living in the shadow of the kind of uncaring masculine toxicity and aggressive dominance given off by the Patrick Batemans of the world. Heron's movie chooses to mock them. Fennell's brings down vengeance on their heads, but they're both coming from similarly blunt graphic points of view that have no patience with predators. And both directors have faced similar responses, with critics, male critics in particular, protesting that the film forwards an unfair, man-hating agenda. Whether it's Kenneth Turan in the LA Times in 2000 complaining about American Psycho's misandry, or Dennis Harvey in Variety in 2020 complaining that Mulligan and Promising Young Woman isn't attractive enough to pull off this kind of honeypot routine, people have been uncomfortable with both films' points of view and the unflattering, uncompromising perspective of the victim looking back at the perpetrator. And that's fine. The victims in both of these films are uncomfortable as well, and both these directors are looking to share that discomfort around and put it right back on the predator's heads where it belongs. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Alberstram. Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section on the play? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something <laughs> no helen is that a raincoat yes it is in 87 huey released this for their most accomplished album i think their undisputed masterpiece is hip to be square a song so catchy most people probably don't listen to the lyrics but they should because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends it's also a personal statement about the band itself hey paul Okay, so I've got kind of a different lead-off question than usual for you this time around. Because this movie is so time-specific, it's set in the 1980s, it was written in the 1990s, it was released in 2000, and it's really beholden to each one of those eras in turn. How does it play for everyone in 2021? Uh, it's weird to think it's, it's released it's further away from us now than this film was from the 80s, though, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I do feel like there was enough distance between... 2000 and 1987 when it's set to the kind of I think they get it I think they kind of get what the era's obsessions were in, in, a, in a really telling way and I was actually a little cool in this film when I first saw it I like it a lot now uh, I'm not sure what, what what my hold up was then but it was you know maybe missed a period when an independent film could come out and, and like I had no idea what this film was going to be like before I saw it I mean there was no sort of set style that this, this was necessarily take I, it's, I think it's kind of exciting piece of filmmaking yeah, I mean, I think I've always kind of processed this movie more or less the same way. This is my third time seeing it. And it's a movie that I always like respond to sort of on a like intellectual formal level, but kind of feel like I'm studying it more than than watching it. Like I don't have a strong emotional connection to this movie, I think, because of that sort of purposely removed stance it takes from Patrick Bateman, which I think is a good choice for the reasons you laid out in that keynote, Tasha. But just as far as having like any sort of emotional connection to our protagonist combined with the, again, purposeful lack of catharsis in this, this film, I always kind of come away from it feeling like I've completed a project more than mm. more than I've watched a movie or, or, or that it's just like not an, an experience that I like crave going back to but it's also not one that I actively resent when I'm in the midst of it I find it funnier each time I watch it in a weird way because because I, I know where the violence is going to come and I can, and the, the shock there is is not is not going to hit me anymore but the the humor does 
Yeah, but I feel like I also know all the jokes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they play. This movie is just like, and maybe I'm just sort of projecting the sort of sterileness of, of the style onto it, but it, it feels like an unchanging movie to me. Like, it, it feels like I will always process this movie the same way, but maybe that's just sort of my kind of personal idiosyncratic reaction to it. I would share Genevieve's reaction to it. I mean, I've, I've watched this film and written about this film multiple times i wrote about it for new cult canon for the av club i wrote about it last year for the guardian for its 20th anniversary and i don't feel like my impression of it has changed with the times and with the culture because to me it's such an expression of its era of that era of what the 80s are what the 80s meant in Patrick Bateman being sort of the personification of that. You know, in, in the write-up that I did for The Guardian last year, I talked about it in terms of this, that three-hour film, uh, The Corporation. Did you ever see that, the documentary? It's this documentary that basically was like, okay, if we are going to consider corporations like we do people, what kind of person is a corporation? You know, <laughs> and of course, the documentary comes to the conclusion that the corporation is sociopathic. And I think that's kind of what American Psycho is about, too, about this guy who is embodying the ideals and, you know, the, the corporatism, the commercialism, you know, the misogyny, everything that we associate with the 80s is being embodied by this person, and that person is a maniac. <laughs> Uh, that's kind of my take on American Psycho. I also find it weirdly just as relevant, though. I mean, I think about the 80s a lot. I worry if it's just like nostalgia or my age. It's probably the era whose pop culture I am most conversant in. I know the most in, in the most detail. But I also feel like this was a reminder of how much of the 80s are still with us and how much mm -hmm. of the, the hangover for, from the attitudes, from, from the sort of business overall to the misogyny, you know, how, how much that – and to uh, the, the man who just left us as president, uh, how much of the, of the attitudes oh – yeah, I mean, how much of the, of the problems and attitudes formed in that time are still what we're grappling with today. Yeah, I mean, to me, this movie kind of comes around in cycles of relevance. But like, I look at the culture right now, and I feel closer to American Psycho than I did uh, the last time I revisited a good mm. 10 years ago. I look at people like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and just sort of think, this is Patrick Bateman. It's the second coming or third or 50th coming of Patrick Bateman. Um, Josh Hawley gives me some of the same vibes. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> They're just, you know, these, these endless cycles of specifically extremely well-off narcissistic men who find their victims, find their weakest and most vulnerable victims in women and immigrants and the disabled. And, you know, just, there's basically anybody who isn't a rich white straight man of a certain class in most of their cases, obviously. I don't know. Milo had a lot of self-hating stuff going on. That's way too complicated and uninteresting uh, to give. He's one of those people you just don't want to give any air. But this movie, when I first saw it, I was so thrilled. I, I walked out just feeling like I'd seen something provocative and, and dangerous on a level I'd never seen before. And as Keith points out, once you have kind of, you know where the violent beats are coming and it, you're not in just like a welter of suspense throughout the movie, that changes a lot. But I just, I feel like the kind of scabrous attack on a certain mindset of like the Wall Street alpha male just it never goes out of style and just right now it seems more relevant than ever i mean 100 percent, holly peels off some sort of thing <laughs> on his face every morning gives him that gives him that kind of like 
scary gleam, you know, when he's uh, putting his fist up for the insurrectionists. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I, you know, I, the way I, I always think about it is that, you know, the Reagan revolution was a was indeed a revolution. I mean, it, so I think a lot of the world we under, we know today and the, and the values that have debased values that have, have become, you know, part of what this country is about. I mean, those were, well, those, uh, we have the eighties to point to for a lot of that stuff. And so, and so, yeah, this, this does remain eternally relevant, but at the same time, I think it's such a fascinating adaptation of this book, right? I mean, because it is a, it is a, an adaptation that is both, you know, scrupulous in many respects, but at war with the book in certain respects as well. It's its own thing. It's a very, it's one of the more challenging and and thoughtful adaptations I can think of. I think it's one of the few movies that just that would really top a list for me of movies better than the book they adapt, especially movies better than the book they adapt that don't just throw the book out the window. Um, mm-hmm. How how many of you have read the book? I've read it and it was like, you know, it was forbidden fruit when it first came out. It was such a controversial item. So I, I, I sought it out, I think partially because of that. And it is, I mean, it is very close to the movie in many ways. I mean, I think the juxtaposition between the way, you know, long descriptions of extreme graphic violence, long descriptions of what he's wearing, <laughs> you know, with all, with all the brand names, uh, there's sort of a flatness to it that, that, that is, that is really an effective stylistic choice. It also goes on for, and, and the, the musical criticism is, is almost verbatim in the, in the, in the, in the movie, if I remember correctly. And, and that, that stuff is, is, is brilliant too. It goes on forever, but then I also kind of feel like the, the, the exhaustion of it is part of the point, but in a way it's kind of like what Genevieve was talking about this movie, where I feel like it is a constructed project that is, you know, fascinating and extremely uh, thought through and, you know, also kind of punishing as, as a piece of art. Yeah, I think it's deliberately punishing. There's a torture sequence in the book that feels like it's 300 pages long, and Mm. not because it's so grueling, although it is kind of grueling, but just because it's so immersed in detail that is not hugely evocative emotionally. I mean, it's it's sort of evocative physically. I remember a live rat being involved at great length, Mm. but he seems to be out to find the tedium in everything. The whole speech about Huey Lewis, I, I believe you're right in that it is taken verbatim, but it's also cut way, way, way down from the full length of the thing. And if I remember correctly, the book had several essays like that at that length, sort of like rock critiques delivered in such a way to become mind numbing. I, I think a lot of the book seems to be meant to be mind numbing. And the fact that Heron looked at that and managed to preserve the flavor, preserve the flavor of the violence without making it tedious, preserve the flavor of the critiques without making it tedious, preserve the flavor of these inane conversations about sweater vests without making them tedious is, is just kind of a form of alchemy. Yeah, I'm really stuck on the music stuff, too, because it is... I mean, the, you know, Huey Lewis, Phil Collins, the stuff was, was... And I have a certain affection for it, too, but the idea that someone like finding profound, you know, profundity in, uh, you know, no jacket required, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, I think, I think maybe the Whitney Houston one's a little off because that, that's, I think there's a little less uh, plasticity to Houston's music, even that really produced, you know, even though it's a really produced 80s product. But the idea of like treating the new Hugh Lewis album as if it's, you know, it's a new accessory, a new, a new type of belt buckle or something, and, and, but also trying to read depths of human emotion into it, it, it is, uh, it is a perverse touch. 
But him seeing greatest love of all is is not as like self affirmation, but as as a, as an a, a tribute to narcissism does work. That's that's for sure. <laughs> and overall, there's that interest in all of these things as commercial products, as perfect commercial products. I mean, that's ultimately what he, why he cares about all of this stuff. I mean, if any of these albums were not juggernauts on the charts, it would be of no interest to him. I, I think the right. fact that they're popular is uh, why he admires them as as these. Uh, productive objects there's also just sort of a sense that like his critique of them is very superficial is very shallow he can talk a good game he can put up this word cloud of thoughts but uh, much as the the print version of these things that goes on at, at even more length the criticism just seems off-based and very surface level which is just kind of him in general you know everything that he says and does happens at a surface level until he starts murdering people and the murder weirdly starts to feel like the only expression of his truest self, which is just this incredibly thin-skinned, fragile person who has nothing to offer the world but destruction, which also is just feeling like a, a more relevant thing culturally right now than it has, you know, even over the last 20 years. That's sort of what, like a violent nihilism? A violent nihilism, but also the inability. There's a class of people right now who is unable to respond to people having different opinions from them with anything except rage and violence. And not just rage and violence, but self-righteous rage and violence and, and just the feeling of, well, you deserve this. You disagree with me. Think about Patrick Bateman on Twitter. Think about how, how awful <laughs> you know, he, would, he would just never stop replying it would, and, and it would get, get more and more violent as it went along. Yeah, that just sort of a twitchy response that he has to the Whitney Houston comment to his victim in his apartment looking at the, the newspapers and saying, do you have a dog? You know, just pretty much any case. And of course, the the famous um, business card scene, just any intimation that somebody is doing better than him or somebody thinks differently than him, somebody has rejected something that he values, it drives him crazy. It <laughs> the, the way he sweats during the business card scene is both terrifying and just like one of the funniest things in the movie. There's an, another like slightly different reading on Bateman that I kind of uh, circled around this time. And I think the business card scene is another kind of good example of it, which is that he is a just thunderingly anonymous person who does not wish to be anonymous. Like he wants to be remembered. He wants to stand out. But he like it seems very notable to me that like no one can remember that he's Patrick Bateman. And that certainly plays into the ending and the sort of debate around it, which I guess we'll inevitably get into. But it also kind of plays into this idea that, you know, he has lovingly crafted this persona of Patrick Bateman, and no one really responds to it. Like, even all of his victims seem to like not even be paying attention to him or, or really like, they're not interested in him. They're not interested in what he's saying until he kills them, you know. And it seems that he is just kind of desperate to be told that he's different and special and wonderful in this way that he sees himself. And he can't get that from anyone. And maybe that's what's driving his actions or fantasies, if you will. Well, we can definitely get into the ending in a bit. But kind of taking that up, yeah, there's a sense that he wants to be 
either noticed or he just wants to obliterate everything around him because literally everything around him is an irritant to him. The people that wear the same clothes that he does and have the same interests and values that he does annoy him and irritate them because they're competition. Mm-hmm. The people that don't annoy him and irritate him because they're in the way. There's just there's nothing in this movie that suggests that he gets satisfaction or comfort out of anything. He's just this sort of eternally restless striver after something that he can't quite define. That's just sort of, you know, quality status, this respect that he's not getting because people keep thinking he's a different dude. I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead to one of your questions you have on the outline here, Tasha, but it, it feels related. When he spares Jean at the last minute, it seems, again, in that reading that I'm suggesting to be coming from a place of uh, her like recognizing him, her seeing him, her maybe even appreciating him. You know, she knows him better than anyone else that he engages with in, in this film. And maybe that sort of tames him in the moment, I guess. Does she, though? I mean, she doesn't realize that he's a predator. She literally doesn't realize Mm -hmm. he's standing behind her with a a nail gun up against her neck. Oh, she doesn't know him. (laughs) I'm I'm not suggesting that, but she is like, she knows about him. She she talks to him every day. She knows that he's Patrick. She is eager to hang out with him in a way that no one else seems to. It is true that she seems to be the only person that knows his actual name. Yeah, so I did want to kind of focus in on that point, because it's a rare moment of something that might be called humanity from Patrick Bateman. He brings his secretary home after controlling how she behaves, controlling what she wears, uh, just kind of relentlessly nagging her in spite of her very clear admiration for him. He pretends that they've got a table at at Dorcia of all places and <laughs> gets her into his home and then he's going to kill her and he doesn't. And it doesn't feel like there's a specific line or moment that moves that, but she's she's a, a very clearly an innocent. It just doesn't occur to her that he has malign intent, even as he's examining every pointy thing in the house that he's considering sticking in her. <laughs> and when he has her in his power, he relents and tells her to get out because he's afraid he's going to hurt her. And even that she takes as a romantic sort of warning. Uh, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm the kind of man who might not be what you want, what you need sort of thing. And I feel like that's an important turning point for the character in a way, even though it doesn't continue, it doesn't save him in any way. So I'm just, I'm curious what people make of that in general. It's kind of where his ultimate disintegration begins too, isn't it? Where he kind of gets more desperate uh, with his with his murders and more desperate between them and like less, uh, less stable. If if stable is the right word to describe <laughs> him uh, in, in any way. I mean, arguably, if we pretend even for a moment to take the action of the movie at face value, and, you know, there are a lot of big questions, a ton of pieces have been written about the what the ending means and whether any of this is real, and if not, where it stops being real. But I think sort of more pertinent is just kind of that sense that once he makes an actual moral stand, once he does something actually moral, he's giving us a hint that he wants to get caught and he wants to stop doing what he's doing. And it feels like the rest of the movie is him escalating in an attempt to get caught. Maybe, again, to have somebody notice him and actually see him for what he is, which is a monster, essentially. Yeah, no one can. No one believes him. He's begging and he's leaving messages and and he's confessing. He's searching for absolution and uh, and he finds no purchase for any of it. 
or catharsis to quote the the line itself you know he and we are maybe seeking some sort of justice or retribution or you know something that makes sense of this chaos and we don't get it and he doesn't either and so the chaos continues and within Patrick Bateman it also feels like to some degree, as he's acting out more and more, as he's disintegrating more and more, he's still looking for that recognition. Like maybe if he can't get recognition as a, a top flight businessman, or at least the guy who's got the, the prettiest business card, maybe if he kills enough people, maybe he can end up in the news, maybe he can go to jail, or maybe he can get himself to a psychiatrist and get fixed. Maybe something can happen. But the world around him just seems so bent on keeping the status quo, on proceeding as as scheduled and as read because nobody cares. One character that stood out to me on this viewing was Lewis Carruthers, played by Matt Ross, and specifically their uh, interaction in the bathroom and sort of the revelation that he is gay and harboring uh, some sort of romantic uh, interest in Patrick. And of course, Patrick deals with that as you as you would expect him to. But it also kind of highlighted for me that Lewis is not as anonymous as all the other guys in in Patrick's circle. He dresses a little differently. His uh, business card is a a little different. They all kind of side-eye it, you know. I think it has a serif font or something. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I, I guess I'm curious to hear from you who have read the book. Is that a character and a a story taken from the book? What's Lewis's role here, I guess. It has been far too long for me to remember. It's It's been about 30 years. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember. Uh, It's so hard to remember anything but Patrick from that book because you're so much inside his head and you're experiencing all of these monologues, you know, pages and pages of texts about one thing or the other that I don't remember any any character from that book other than Patrick. I mean, maybe, and that's maybe to the credit of the filmmakers that they do make, you know, other people in this film more vivid than the book did. But the book has a flattening effect that's quite deliberate, whereas the, the film is a little bit more nuanced. It gives you a little bit more in terms of character from a lot of people. There's a lot of, lot of, a lot of interesting characters' performance in this, this film, and I, I don't remember much of anything other than Patrick Bateman from that book. But speaking to the film itself, it is, you know, we, we talked about Gene, but but he is the other character that does not get killed. He does escape. And Patrick's reaction to his uh, expressing of, of a desire for him really throws him. And, you know, it's, it's maybe oversimplistic to say Patrick's been suppressing his sexuality and that's, that's, that's his problem. But I think that kind of figures into the mix as well. There is also just a sense of confusion and terror in Patrick there, maybe because he's actually, again, been seen and recognized, but -hmm. it's a form of being seen and recognized that he hadn't anticipated and doesn't know how to value. It doesn't fit into his status system at all. But at the same time, it's what he's been saying he wants. And I, I think in some ways, he flees in confusion, like not out of some kind of 80s-centric gay panic gag, but just because he literally doesn't know what to do with another man who recognizes him in that particular way. It's not on his menu at all. It's not something that he was looking for or can understand. And he doesn't have the impulse to to lash out and destroy this person because it's not somebody else who's ignoring him and not seeing him. But he also just doesn't have the capacity for emotional or physical response in a positive way. 
I mean, he, he also, he self-enforces heteronormative <laughs> values all, all of the time. He's got the, the, he's got pornography playing on, on his uh, videotapes in the background. He's looking at himself flexing, you know, in the mirror at one point. And, uh, you know, there's a, anything that disrupts or, or causes him to question those values is highly disconcerting to him and highly, you know, it makes him extremely uncomfortable. I remember the fiance being a bigger going concern in the book to some degree. I'm always a little surprised in the film what a non-starter, what a non-raider she is. Because we we kind of have the scene where he talks about his, his so-called fiance and she seems like a match for him in a lot of ways, but she just she just doesn't seem like a significant part of the picture for him at all, which is, you know, maybe uh, very appropriate in keeping with the story being told. But it always feels like a sort of weird uh, detail on the edge to me. Her as well as Courtney, uh, played by Samantha Mathis, his sort of woman on the side, and they're all kind of it appears to be trading, uh, <laughs> you know, as significant others uh, in, in, in some way or another. But yeah, I kind of had a similar reaction watching because I was like, oh, that's it's Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon's in this movie, you know, uh, Samantha Mathis is, maybe has a little bit less of that response at, at, at this time. But like, they're not characters that you think of when you think of this movie. It's, it's really hard to think of anyone besides Patrick Bateman in, in the context of, the, of this movie. But yeah, they just kind of disappear a little. But to go back to that scene with Gene, where he lets her go, the sort of the preceding event is the answering machine message from uh, his fiance, whose name I am already blanking on from Evelyn. But again, there doesn't seem to be any direct correlation between what she says and his actions. She's just sort of this, you know, presence that seems like she should be a complicating factor, but she's not. There is sort of one exception to the nobody stands out in this movie rule. And I think that's Willem Dafoe as Detective Kimball. Yeah. <laughs> he's a really memorable character in part because he just provides both the tension of the movie, like to the degree that we think Bateman eventually might get caught. It, that comes from Kimball's doggedness and his straight man uh, banters back and forth with uh, with Patrick are, I think, some of the, the movie's most straight faced, hilarious parts, maybe because of that tension, or maybe just because of the responses that he brings up in him. But one of the things that I ran across, like researching this movie, the making of this movie uh, beforehand, was just the idea that like Lionsgate really, really did not want Christian Bale for this role. And the big compromise in putting a relative unknown into the main uh, role was that Heron book big stars like Chloe Sevigny and Reese Witherspoon and, and Willem Dafoe to fill out the cast, you know, so it'd be like a star studded phenomenon that they wanted, even with this nobody in the the main role. And the the idea of looking at this movie today and thinking, yeah, that guy in the in the lead role, I guess he's okay. But I mean, <laughs> I, I picked this movie up for Chloe Sevigny. It's just a little <laughs> hilarious to me. I think Kimball is also, if you want to argue whether or not this is in his head or actually happening, I think Kimball is actually one of the best arguments for this is in his head because it seems like a, a very Patrick Bateman idea of how a detective would behave. Like he apologizes for not making an appointment. They go out for lunch dates together. <laughs> it's like <laughs> like no detective I've ever actually seen work uh, in, a, in a movie otherwise. And I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's accurate to NYPD policy. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, maybe someone else does more than I do. Well, 
Well, Andy just disappears at, at yeah. the convenient moment, you know? Yeah, I never thought about it that way. I always thought about it as the opposite of somebody who is so much an outsider to this world and who is someone that is that we can immediately identify with as a, as an audience as as a person who who's kind of seeing things as they are, is seeing through Patrick Bateman quite well and uh isn't a part of the world that Patrick or any of his cohorts uh occupy. And there's the fact that Gene sees him and, you know, mm. acknowledges his, his existence. Oh, fair enough. But now we're getting into the, you know, solving the film discussion, <laughs> which um, I don't know. Is, is any of us interested in, in that? Is it? I think it's more interesting as an, un, as an unsolvable, well-balanced uh, uh, film that, you know, will not uh, reveal its mysteries to you. I think it's more interesting as a satire. I mean, mm. the, the reality of a film is that this is not a film that requires reality. I don't think that there's a big M. Night Shyamalan reveal at any point in the movie. I don't think that there's a, a conscious twist point where we transition from reality to fantasy. Mary Heron has said like repeatedly and pretty vehemently that the whole thing is not a fantasy in his head. Like She does think that at least some of these murders definitely occurred. So if we're not to dismiss the whole thing as fantasy, but there are parts of it, like him shooting the the police car, that we can't quite take as reality, I don't think uh, Reddit film detectiving this movie is that satisfying compared with the experience of experiencing it. Like I think it's ultimately more meant as a satire of, of 80s excess in a particular mindset than it is as an unlockable puzzle. Uh, yeah, that's the one thing I've never felt like this movie really stuck the landing. I just I've never found the ending of it to be all that clear and, and satisfying and fully thought through. It felt it seems to me like a problem that Heron and Turner couldn't quite solve or Ellis for that matter. Well, I mean, if that's true, I think it's deliberate in a way. I mean, he he can't find catharsis. The movie can't quite find catharsis. He can't find resolution because in the end, if he if he did manage to get acknowledgement for himself uh, via violence, like what would that be telling us really? It's a really naughty question and one that's going to come up in a way when we start talking about promising young woman. But there are only so many ways for a story like this to end. And I don't know if there's one that you're looking for that would be more satisfying to you here. If you were to consider the film to be satire, which I guess I would first and foremost, I think you want something that has a little bit of a snap to it. Um, and this just sort of spirals out along with our character. And I mean, maybe maybe I should be more comfortable with that. But it just it, it's like the one the, the film is just so clear in its purpose, its intent. You know, it's so it's so full of strong decisions on on a visual level on a script level that i was disappointed that i don't get that feeling as it concludes perhaps the answers can be found in the 2002 film american psycho 2 <laughs> all american girls sorry myla kunis and william shatner i saw Spoiler, that one actually oh, did super you? cannot mm -hmm. not in any way or shape or form yeah, it's it's um it's not as good as american psycho i will say that definitively that is certainly it's, a way of putting it those yeah. are words that you can put together it's in that order. It's worse than Basic Instinct Two, hmm. which is pretty, <laughs> which itself is absolutely terrible. Which was almost directed by David Cronenberg, just like this film. Yeah, oh, wow. how about that? Full in circle. Our, did it almost star uh, Johnny Depp in the Mila Kunis role? 
Mm, perhaps not. <laughs> not American Psycho 2, but uh, Basic Instinct 2 was almost directed by Cronenberg. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fascinating. Well, I guess one sort of thought on the ending for me is just that ultimately it feels like what she's saying is that violence continues on, you know, narcissism continues on, like toxic, this very specific flavor of toxic masculinity continues on. And she doesn't have an answer. There's no way for it all to be wrapped neatly up in a satisfying sort of way because the culture doesn't have any way of wrapping it up or, or getting rid of it or moving on. It's just a constant continuity. It also features that conversation about Ronald Reagan, which is maybe, was a, say, maybe yeah. a little on the nose, but, but also you know, not insignificant. Yeah, it feels like as far as like ending punctuation on a, you know, 80s set satire that uh, Ronald Reagan is uh, pretty effective, I guess. Well, speaking of ending punctuation, we should wrap this up and move on. But I don't see how we can without talking about the Christian Baleness of it all. You know, I've, I've referenced the fact that he was an unknown at this time, but I think he really leaves his mark here. And I cannot imagine this movie with Johnny Depp or Leonardo DiCaprio in this role. I can kind of see it with DiCaprio or yeah. Edward Norton, although I, I I think this is a great performance. And, you know, there's kind of like there's sort of he's sort of doing 80s Tom Cruise. And he's very much uh, drawing from uh, Nicolas Cage in in, um, in a Vampire's Kiss. In you know, having seen these in fairly close proximity, in, in ways I never even recognized before, uh, it is a, a it's several tips of the hat to, to that performance as well. But yeah, I think it's it's remarkable, uh, remarkable work. This is a period. I mean, he's still exciting, but this is sort of a period when he sort of emerged as a really like, what is he going to do next, and 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 when can I see it? Kind of actor. Yeah, he from time to time his performance here seems maybe a little too broad for me, a little a little too big. And then I more and more think that that's just exactly what he's going for, that the the coldness on one end, the kind of like Kubrickian surfaceness of both the film and the character and the actor just feel very deliberate and very conscious. And then when he cuts loose, when he goes manic, he really is pretty scary, I think. Yeah, it's a really rangy performance too. I mean, I, I, and I, you know, and a part of that performance extends to the voiceover narration, which is, I think, brilliantly handled and done with just the right tone. I guess it's deadpanish tone, and then he does it does amplify for him. I mean, he 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 will give you these clean monologues about Huey Lewis and and Phil Collins, but then when he loses it, he loses it, and there's a, you, you really get many faces to a person who is kind of simple-minded in a way, in a way is not is not is supposed to be kind of a flattened out uh, representation of an era but Bale himself gives you a lot of different flavors I guess as a performer he's also really something to look at too I mean he's obviously he's a really attractive man but he's also kind of repellent at the same time I was gonna bring this up but couldn't think of a way to do it that didn't just sound really like flighty and surface level but like I kept focusing on his lips and how mm. flesh colored they were and it like his his lips were the same color as his skin like there was no blood there you know and i think that's probably a, a makeup choice a very subtle makeup choice but it does kind of contribute to this feeling that he's like a lifeless mannequin particularly in that opening scene when we are when we are first meeting him and there is just no color in his face despite being like an objectively handsome uh well-maintained face 
Well, we're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk about objective attractiveness and <laughs> the use of makeup for different effects and actors putting on many different faces within the same character when we bring promising young women into this conversation in the second half of this episode. But for the moment, let's wrap up our thoughts on American Psycho and move on to feedback. for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First up is a letter looking into our recent pairing of A Matter of Life and Death and Soul, and particularly in some of the thoughts that our guest brought in about Soul itself. Uh, Genevieve? Uh, Larry writes, I can't say I enjoyed your take on Soul, but it did elicit a response. I take issue with your guest critic's analysis of the film. It seemed like Robert Daniels was overthinking it, especially in terms of the supposed blackface and passing theme. He successfully played greater contrarian to reliably contrarian Tasha. If you take the movie at face value, apart from any knowledge about the voice cast choices, it's about a man learning to appreciate a part of his life, those everyday interactions that he took for granted. To achieve that end, he has to motivate a lost soul to find its spark. There is no gender or race assigned to this being. 22 even demonstrates this by imitating people of different personalities. The filmmakers seem to have gone out of their way to avoid the stigma of a blackface portrayal, going so far as to animate before souls as little blue cherubs. Their managers look like abstract paintings. Subtextually, maybe you could make an argument for calling this, quote, digital blackface, but it's not even close to the offensive portrayals in Birth of a Nation or Soul Man. As far as passing, Daniels again misses the lesson of the film, as a cynical 22 learns that life in the flesh is not horrible. It's appreciation, again, this is not a white woman, no matter who is voicing the character, of the simple things reminds Joe of a time when he wasn't defeated by life. The narrative never really stops being about Joe and his issues with his family, friends, and students. He eventually realizes he shouldn't deny someone else those pleasures that he took for granted. And for his selfless gesture, he's given a second chance at life. When people complain about the second act of Soul, I say that it's essential to the third act lessons and eventual catharsis. And yes, I was moved by the ending. Soul asks whether our spark is God-given talent within or does it come from the world around us. It's not created to belittle or demoralize anyone. It's too bad things are overanalyzed to the point of being unenjoyable. So I've got a bunch of thoughts on this, um, but we'll start with the fact that uh, when Robert was on the podcast, we were in the very early stages of working on a piece together about all this. And it's since gone up at Polygon.com. You can find it under the headline, The Frustrating Tradition Behind Soul's Great Flaw. And some of the things that he was working to articulate on this podcast, I think he articulates a lot more clearly in print after a lot of kind of like conversation. I think he ends up expressing maybe more clearly and in more detail in print. I think when he came on the podcast, to some degree, he didn't want to cannibalize that piece. And as a result, maybe he goes into a little more depth and specificity about exactly these things, about uh, the passing narrative, about whether 22 is specifically coded as a white woman, in spite of the fact that they can change their voice uh, to be anything and is technically ungendered and without race. As far as the bigger meaning of soul, like he gets into that, he gets into kind of the, the place of black life in the film. He gets into the cliches of digital blackface. And more to the point, I think something that really had not occurred to me, he brings up something that has not sat well with a lot of black viewers of this film um, and black critics specifically. 
And that's the degree to which in animation, black characters tend to be taken out of black bodies and put into blob characters or animal characters or object characters. You know, they're specifically taken away from blackness. So a lot of these thoughts that Larry's objecting to, I think maybe it would be a good idea to, to read that piece and the responses to it, which have been surprisingly detailed and nuanced and thoughtful. There's been a lot of conversation around this film, and, and I have to say that some of these thoughts were thoughts I didn't agree with entirely either. But seeing how they've resonated specifically with Black audiences to a very large degree has made me kind of rethink some of my assumptions and some of my prejudices. I think it's a really good idea when a bunch of people are telling you, hey, this plays very differently for some segments of the audience than it does for you. Listening to their experience is a good idea rather than telling them, well, you've overthought it. We've gotten a very few responses uh, to the effect of, well, this isn't offensive and you, uh, you're you just nitpicking. You're just looking for something to, to hate. And it's like none of us as critics do that. We respond to things from our points of view. And if that reads like a, a wrong reaction to you, well, you're just not coming from the same points of view that we do. That's why we have these conversations to kind of expose different points of view. But I, I kind of wanted to use this letter as a little bit of a jumping off point. I know all of us have had the experience as critics of being told, stop overanalyzing, stop thinking about movies so much. Why do you ruin movies for yourself? Why do you overanalyze things? And my favorite response to that ever has been uh, Matt Singer's essay, Stop Telling Me to Turn My Brain Off at Movies. But I'm wondering if anybody here has had specific, I guess, ways of responding to that kind of thing when somebody tells you you're overanalyzing a movie or you're nitpicking a movie, you found this thing objectionable that I don't find objectionable, so it's not objectionable. Yeah, I, I, I don't like, I don't love that <laughs> response. <laughs> it is not my favorite thing to hear, because, um, you know, one of the things I really love about movies is talking about them and and learning different points of view, even if those points of views don't align with mine. I mean, I think it can be, there can be friction. It can be uncomfortable when you know your point of view falls way out of alignment with say Tasha's point of view uh, but uh, just for example but we I, I don't like the idea that that it makes it unenjoyable I mean I think it's good to be able to question our responses a little bit to be able to take in criticism or points of view that are not our own I mean that's just part of film discourse that's that's good I mean you know you, you just want a good honest engagement with movies and uh, that, that's what Robert brought to the podcast he brought to that article as well and and uh does it mean that i you know dislike soul now it does not <laughs> any more than i'm sure larry still enjoys soul too but uh but it's okay to be able to acknowledge maybe you might have some blind spots or maybe there might be a, a way of looking at the film that you hadn't considered um and that's all to the positive that's why we do this i think it's also important to say you can talk about problems with a film or things that sound you know read a sour to you uh, without saying this is a bad film and needs it needs to go away, which was no one, no one was saying about that film. And also, while we're on the topic, there's a, there's a good essay along similar topics by Namwali Surpel in the current New Yorker called Pixar's Troubled Soul that kind of gets into some of the same topics and and, and uh, specifically you know, the history of um, the history of, of black characters in animation, the way it deals with black culture, um, the sort of you know some some of the things that Robert touched on uh, on the show and, and in his essay as well, but but from a different point of view or a similar point of view, but someone else saying it. 
Well, here's a question about home viewing in the time of COVID. Uh, we've gotten a few more call-in letters recently, which is exciting. Uh, let's listen. Hi, uh, folks. This is Lawrence uh, calling from Boston. I just finished listening to your 2020 recap. And something I noticed you did not talk about is how your home viewer watching has changed over 2020. Uh, I know for me, I spent money getting a new subwoofer, getting some better rare speakers. Uh, and I'm curious if your habits or technology around watching a movie at home change now that we're in a world uh, we can't go to theaters. Yeah, so I have not expanded my home theater in any way. I've not made any technical modifications. But one of the things that we have done uh, since COVID is, is, is to have make Friday our family movie night. And we, we started this with Music Box. When Music Box shut down, they offered this these to-go concession packages where you could get this gigantic, and you still can get a gigantic bag of movie popcorn, uh, two uh, candies, and um, either beer or wine or whatever you want, like a nice four-pack. I would get, always get a four-pack of uh, artisanal fancy beer. So, uh, and, and this is this... You know, my kids, we've, we've watched all kinds of great things together, lots of Studio Ghibli films and Singing in the Rain and, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and it's been a lot of fun. So I'll always remember this time as being, uh, you know, pretty special for our family and for, for us sort of bonding over watching these movies on Friday nights. I don't know if that will continue <laughs> when the restrictions have lifted, but um, that, that has definitely been a big change for me and for us since this started. I find it funny that you're going in the direction of more elaborate rituals and making more of a production out of watching films. I've gone in the exact opposite direction. I watch so many more films now on my laptop um, while lying on the futon. And I think it's just because so many more of these films now are coming to me through computer interfaces that are kind of baroque and complicated. Mm -hmm. We do have a computer hooked up to our home video system in the basement with the surround sound and the giant TV and all that stuff. But like the process of getting to some of these screeners, which involves click a link, send yourself an email, open the email, put in your phone number, get a code to your phone number, input that on the computer, use that to navigate to a website and start a uh, streaming thing up. It's so much easier to do on the laptop. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, like often I find myself just I'm just going to hit a couple of buttons and watch this movie rather than go downstairs and like fire up the the amplifier and uh, navigate to the right channels and then put in all of this stuff like on a, a physical keyboard. It's just easier. And I've gotten very lazy about it in uh, in quarantine. Sorry, movies. <laughs> um no i'm i'm with the i'm with the caller i mean uh um if you can you know obviously you you have if you can't afford to do it that's that's fine uh you just you know you can do the tasha robinson thing and just watch it on your laptop or whatever but if you if you've got the means to to get together a nice home theater system you definitely should that's, that's sort of been my experience it's it's improved uh my um uh my appreciation of movies uh which i which i you know I, you know you can you, you liked can, it before well i know but you but to home, home viewing that's this is true but you know, Tasha, you can cast these things up too. It's fairly easy. Just hit a couple of buttons and you can watch on the TV. <laughs> uh, but um, one thing we did during quarantine was move, uh, which was um, we moved to, I can move my, my TV down to the, the basement and, and my years long battle with glare. Uh, I, I've emerged victorious from it. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I, you know, we bought blackout curtains and everything at the old place and, and still you, you got reflections from the, from the windows and now nothing, just, just blackness and movies. I love it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I uh, I also moved during quarantine very very recently, weeks ago, as as a matter of fact. And um, I think I've I've spoken about this before, but uh, before moving into this house, I was uh, living along with my fiance with my mom um, in in my childhood home, and so that was the context in which I was um, watching all of my my quarantinement. And uh, like we had our own space in in the house, and Steve and I like watched things together there. But we also like watched a lot of things with my mom in mind, similar to Scott's like Friday movie night. Um, we also didn't, you know, do any big home theater upgrades because it, it wasn't our home theater. Um, now that we're, you know, in, in our house that, you know, I think is something we, we both are interested in doing, but, you know, moving is expensive. So, so maybe not, not immediately. But kind of what this letter made me think about is just how the pandemic has changed my awareness of what movies are out there right now, um, at least as far as like kind of major releases. And in part, that's because as we've talked about, like uh, on this podcast and on bonus episodes, the release calendar is AFU and, you know, what what constitutes a big release when it's, you know, on a st- streaming service. Um, you know, back in the before times, you could like just see what's playing at the movie theater and had kind of have a sense of, of what's new and notable and, and what needs to be seen. And now it's all just kind of spread to the wilds of the internet. And there are, you know, there are lists and there are schedules that you can keep up with, but it's all very kind of scattered and hard to stay on top of. And now that, you know, movies is no longer my my full-time job, it's kind of even harder to like remain aware of of what's coming up, especially like what basically how I want to spend what I want to spend my Friday night watching, you know, before I could kind of let the the movie theater marquee help dictate that and now it's a little more self-guided and uh that's hard sometimes <laughs> for me anyway yeah it's a big mess <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I mean it, it it feels very discombobulated right now and, and really just to go back to what tasha was saying about the screener situation uh and all of these different for your consideration apps and procedures it's just it's a mess it's really hard to keep up and to, to get a sense of what the scene is like right now whereas it's you know in the before times it was extremely easy to know what the big deal movies were that were coming to the multiplex and what the big deal movies are that were coming to art houses now it's just it's it's you, you just feel like you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants i like to call it job security <laughs> they need us more than ever to try to figure out what the heck is going on right <laughs> But it is a uh, it is a little frustrating from day to day, and there's there's no day where I feel like I'm not uh, three steps behind on figuring out what the worthwhile movie yeah. is and how to get it to people. Well, on that uh, somewhat dispiriting note, we do actually appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at banality, murder, and the yes all men hashtag message from a completely different angle in Promising Young Woman. Look for that episode next Tuesday or subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. 
Until then, don't expect to find us at that prime table down at Dorsia. Nobody goes there